Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our From the Trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have with me Alyssa, and I'm sorry, I did not ask you when we were chatting to ask you how to say your last name, so you, if you could help me. That's okay. It's Lozapone. Lozapone. Okay. Um, from Newport Rest- Restoration, or, yeah, Restoration Foundation. Uh, thank you for, for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. So, so tell me about your background. Sure. So I have both my undergraduate and graduate degrees in historic preservation, And I, right out of graduate school, I worked for the Preservation Society of Newport County here in Newport, Rhode Island. I was there for about four years when I left to work for the Connecticut State Historic Preservation Office, uh, where I managed both historic homeowner tax credit uh, program as well as a historic restoration fund grant program. Um, After two and a half, three years there, I became the director of preservation at the Newport Restoration Foundation, where I am now. Okay, very good. Um, And and when you said that you were working for the State Office of Historic Preservation and there was a grant program, was that mostly for nonprofits? That's usually what I see. So I was just curious if it was different in Connecticut. Yeah, so Connecticut is unique in that it has a historic homeowner tax credit. And then we also, or we, I'm no longer there, but (laughs) Connecticut also has historic restoration fund grant program, which is for nonprofits and municipalities to do bricks and mortar work. Okay, very good. I was just curious. And and I get those questions all the time about, you know, is there funding? And usually it's no. So, you know, I I like to I like to just know know those things. So what what drew you into preservation? It's unusual. uh, As I talk to different preservation professionals to find someone who, you know, started right away, you know, in, in, in preservation right out of high school. So I'm curious what 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 drew you in? Yeah, no, I feel very lucky to have found it early on. I mean, I was always interested in history and I thought that I wanted to work in a museum. And so Salve Regina University popped up as a good option for that. I think within my undergraduate degree, I quickly came to realize that I was more enamored and interested in buildings than I was in chairs or pottery or collections items. And so that's what sort of directed me down the historic preservation path. And I, you know, I'm really passionate about buildings and the stories they tell, but more broadly, um, the sense of place that they create and what they can mean for a community economically and in terms of vitality and, and all of those great things. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's one of the reasons I, I always loved history too, but that's one of the reasons that I love preservation because it's, it can mean so many things to different people. The buildings can. Right. It's a very dynamic profession and very interdisciplinary, which I, which I love. You get to work with architects and engineers and curators and 
um, carpenters. So it allows you to be very um, involved in a lot of different ways. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, so tell me about the Newport Restoration Foundation. Sure. So the Newport Restoration Foundation or NRF, which I'll probably call it as I'm moving forward, um, was founded by a woman named Doris Duke in 1968. And she was a philanthropist, uh, had her family had a summer home on Bellevue Avenue. So she was a uh, well off. And in, in the sixties, Newport, um, was suffering from sort of the decline of being a Navy town and sort of the upward swing of urban renewal. And so a lot of the city's historic resources were threatened. And so she came in in 68 and purchased over a few years, over 80 18th and 19th century buildings. Um, and she rehabbed them. And her goal was not for Newport to become Sturbridge Village or Colonial Williamsburg, not that there's anything wrong with that, but she really wanted it to be a living city. She was very strategic. She would buy houses sort of on the corner of streets and her goal was to be a catalyst for private restoration. And that really, it worked. Yeah. Um, we have examples of, you know, her buying one or two buildings on a corner and then you see private restoration over the following year sort of pop up in that neighborhood. So that was, what she did in the 60s and 70s. Today, we still own about 70 of these original buildings um, and they are residential and commercial rental properties. Um, and we rent them to what we refer to as tenant stewards because we don't view them just as tenants, but they live in the home, use the home and help us keep an eye on what those homes need from a preservation perspective. In addition to these properties, we own and operate her family home rough point on Bellevue Avenue as a museum. We also um, own and operate the Whitehorn House Museum, which she brought in with the intention of it being a museum. Um, and it houses um, Rhode Island furniture and focuses on craft and that story. And we also have outside of Newport, but in our neighboring uh, towns, Portsmouth and Middletown, um, additional uh, space called Prescott Farm, which houses both rental properties, but also sort of a public park um, with a windmill that was moved to the site and some other various historic buildings. I think initially she did envision that as sort of a place for colonial farming to be recreated and things like that. But right now it's just a beautiful public park um, that people frequent, uh, which is great. There's not a lot of green space on Aquinnick Island. Yeah, that, that is great. Um, and I was thinking as you were describing, you know, her starting to do this in the late sixties and that was kind of the, the start of the preservation movement. Um, did, have you like, I know I see things in Lancaster like that were done in the seventies that were going back and kind of correcting because it wasn't exactly, you know, the way that we would do it now. Are you, are you going through that and doing that on some of these earlier properties that were restored? Yeah, I think um, we're not making changes at the moment, but we are as an organization sort of grappling with this history of preservation and that it was of a moment in time and that she, the organization, the crew, preservation crew might've made decisions that we wouldn't make today. Right. Um, you know, there was a very conscious choice to bring these buildings back to the colonial era, 18th, you know, 18th and 19th century. And right. so, you know, 20th century storefronts were removed to bring it back to um, 
the colonial era. And again, that's not to say that was good, bad, or indifferent. It was just right. a moment in time. Yeah. And, um, and and that is a a present. I often I'll talk to people about you know there's like t- philosophies in preservation, and doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just you know, do you take it back to the original period, you know, what the National Park Service would call the period of significance, or do you acknowledge the changes that have occurred over time as part of the building's history? And I think that either way can be correct, depending on what the building's use is. Right. And I think Um, it's a really unique story that NRF mm -hmm. can tell that we had this female leader in the 60s that bought up so much of Newport's historic landscape and had she was very involved in the restoration process I mean we have painters that worked with her that remember her getting on ladders and saying no this isn't how you do it you do it this way and actually doing it herself so I think we um perhaps are moving in a direction sort of to honor that story and tell that story and and sort of celebrate her for who she was. And again, that moment in preservation. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And even, even like the places that are supposed to be kind of static in time, like Williamsburg, if you go back every few years, they've changed things because they've discovered things. So I don't, yeah, I think that it is, it's a dynamic, a dynamic story that we're telling. Um, so I noticed when I was getting ready for, for the podcast that the tagline on your website is yeah, protecting heritage and a cha- changing climate. Can you explain, you know, what that means? Sure. Yeah, so in 2016, before I arrived at NRF, um, the organization started an initiative called Keeping History Above Water, or what we call KHA. Um, And really the goal of KHA, or the goal of protecting heritage in a changing climate, was to cultivate educational programming that addresses the impact of climate climate change, but primarily sea level rise Mm. on historic resources. And... um, it's both because we view it as sort of the threat to preserve, one of the threats to preservation today, but also it's very real to us at NRF. We have 32 buildings that are threatened by seawater inundation either now or with three to five feet of sea level rise. So it's very real for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, you know, working through that as we speak, you know, how are we going to address this? Have you started to, raise buildings or are you looking like for more passive ways? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we um, have just completed a vulnerability assessment to really identify uh, which properties are our priorities. Um, We have installed sump pumps in nearly all of our properties as sort of a first round or first line of defense. Um, And we're looking at things like foundation conditions, bulkhead designs to sort of at a very basic level and low expense level um, to keep the water out. Um, We actually also uh, about two years ago sold a building that was one of the most threatened in Newport 74 Bridge Street um, with an easement on it with the goal and hope that the owners would elevate it. And we worked very, very closely with them on that design. It was one of the first buildings that was elevated under the city's new uh, elevation design guidelines. So we don't have the answer yet. Um, right. there's, it's complicated. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's probably not one right answer for each building. So you have to, I, the assessment is really smart um, because looking at each building individually, you, not, not, yeah, there's not one right fit. So I, I think that's really smart. And it is, it, it, it is a, it is a huge uh, concern because a lot of our historic uh, buildings are along waterways. 
mm-hmm. and and that does put them in danger. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, on, on the website, you have resources for various audiences, but I, I thought that your homeowner resources were very extensive, and I thought that's something that a lot of people could use. Um, and it was it had a, a various topics that would be helpful to you know a historic homeowner no matter where they are. So can you tell me a little bit about those? Sure. Yeah. So those are um, sort of a compilation of expertise that we have in house. We have a great in house preservation crew of about a dozen tradespeople um, that have been working here everywhere from two weeks to thirty seven years, and so we feel like we have a lot of institutional knowledge that we can share that can be a resource for others. Um, So that's really the spirit of that. Admittedly, um, many of the documents were put together before my time, perhaps could use to be updated. Um, Although as my marketing manager reminded me, um, old buildings don't change. So (laughs) that is true. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, but it is, I think the spirit of it and and a goal of the organization is to be a resource Mm -hmm. for the community and by being a resource, encourage best preservation practices. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. And, and some of those practices do change, but um, the majority, like even the preservation briefs that the national park service put out, some of them are are pretty old and the most, most of the guidance is still pretty good. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so don't, you don't have to put that at the top of your list. <laughs> okay. I'll add it somewhere on my to-do list. But not right. Yeah. That just doesn't have to be at the top. So what, um, what trends or challenges do you see in preservation? Yeah. So obviously climate change and sea level rise are very near and dear to NRF's heart. Um, but I would also say aside From that, I think one of the challenges that I see here in Newport and on Aquidneck Island in general is um, the real estate market, I think, is um, expediting the uh, gutting of interiors. We see a lot of houses for sale, especially in a community like Newport, where people maybe can decide now post COVID to leave the city and they want to live in a, you know, a smaller community, but they have the resources to make really substantial updates to their houses. I think a threat is in this market is losing some of those beautiful interiors. Of course, the exteriors are protected by the historic district commission, but the interiors are not. And so that's a threat. Um, And then I think very real for us uh, at NRF, but in the greater community in which we work is the availability of historic tradespeople. Mm -hmm. And I know that's an issue nationally as well. Um, NRF is actually uh, in the process of getting a historic trades training program off the ground because, um, man, we can't find a mason to save our life Um, or a mason that knows how to work with historic brownstone and um, things like that. So to me, those are the top three that come. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I know, um, that's a big issue in Philadelphia. Uh, we we worked on a house um, near Independence Park, and um, the people had owned the house since the '60s, and they were the only house left in both sides of the street that the interior was still original. Everybody else had got it, got it and modernized. Now the city, the outside's protected, so it still looks colonial. But right. <laughs> yeah. when you walk in those houses, it's a like a, a shock, shock to the system. Yeah. Yeah. And it just breaks my little preservation heart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wish there was something we could do. Yeah, so I, I agree with you on that. But I, I actually agree with all, all three of your points. So um, is there anything that you would like to promote um, today? 
Sure, no, thanks for asking. I think as an organization, we'd love to promote the fact that we are doing Keeping History Above Water in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in May of 2023. So you can visit historyabovewater.org to learn more about that. Um, we, as I mentioned, we're launching a preservation trades upskilling um, program this fall um, here on Aquidneck Island. So we're looking forward to that. So keep an eye on our social media channels uh, for updates. And we just had last week, we're very excited, a new president starts so or a new formerly executive director now referred to as President Frank Bagnoni started last week. So we're very excited about his arrival and all the great positive changes that that'll need for the organization. Very good. Those, those all sound like exciting things. I'll have to check out the history above water because um, I'm, I'm interested in, in every, what everybody's plans are for that. Cause I think it's, yeah. it's going to be, it's going to be something that we're going to have to deal with sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Um, how can our listeners support your efforts? Sure. Well, um, like I said, follow us on social media um, at Newport Restoration on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can donate if you're feeling generous to our restoration partners program. Uh, you can find that on our website that goes directly to our historic preservation efforts uh, on Quinnick Island and in Newport specifically. Okay, very good. And then if someone's listening and wants to get in contact with you, how can they do that? Sure, they can email me. Happy to get an email, Alyssa at NewportRestoration.org. And that's Alyssa, A L Y S S A. And I'd be more than happy to hear from you. Okay, very good. And we'll make sure that um, that's on our website where the where the podcast is housed. So if if someone's listening and doesn't get a chance to hear it, they can go to the website and, and see your contact information. Awesome. Sounds okay. good. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.